Beloved, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 6 as we continue in Romans. And as you're turning there, I just want to mention that this is our, for those who are visiting, this is our 45th week in the book of Romans. And so we've been here for a while. We've considered a lot of wonderful truth. And while we'll touch upon some of that this morning, a lot has gone before. And Paul has been building upon his his gospel uh, argument, as it were, or his uh, gospel teaching. And uh, what we see in the book of Romans in terms of structure is we have Paul's opening greeting, and then in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, we have an exposition of the universal depravity of mankind. Uh, We see uh, Paul's explanation that both Jew and Gentiles are sinners. And then we move to that glorious section of Romans 3, 21, through chapter 5, all about that justification that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that a righteousness has been revealed to us, not a righteousness that comes from the law through our obedience, but a righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to us, through His obedience, through His death on the cross, it comes to us by grace through faith. And so we have gone all the way then through chapter 5, and then in this next section, which we'll be considering over the next several weeks, um, is, is, is uh, chapters 6 through 8, which traditionally people understand as dealing with sanctification. And so we have the depravity of mankind, we have justification, we have sanctification, chapters 6 through 8, and then chapters 9 through 11 is on uh, election. What does it mean? God has made all these promises to Israel, and, and uh, God is a, a God who has elected some unto everlasting life and left others Uh, in their sin and rebellion unto everlasting death. What does all this mean? How do we make sense of this? And that's through chapter 11, and then we get to chapter 12, and then Paul says in verse 1, in view of all these mercies, in view of all that I've just taught you, do not be conformed to the world, but be living sacrifices, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then he goes on to have very practical Christian teaching all the way through chapter 16. And so there's kind of a snapshot of Romans, and we are right in the middle of it right now as we consider this glorious section in Romans 6. And so we're going to, this morning, really zero in on the first couple of verses of Romans 6, but we will be considering, and by way of overview, a lot of what Romans 6 in full is teaching, and so I will read all of it uh, this morning. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united to him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. 
But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are no longer under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? At the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, it almost seems adequate to just read the text. But Lord, we know there is so much here for us to understand and so much confusion and so many minds about justification and its relationship to sanctification and how we are to live as Christian believers united to Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning and in the coming weeks that you would teach us, that you would sanctify us, that you would disciple us, that you would show us Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This morning, dear ones, we come to one of the greatest sections in all of Scripture. Romans 6 through 8. Indeed, if the book of Romans is the Mount Everest of Scripture, the the clearest and most majestic exposition of the gospel in all of the Bible, then Romans 6 through 8 is nearing the summit. We are nearing the summit, and it's from this grand vista that we get an unforgettable, moving, powerful view of the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, as well as the believer's union with Christ through the Holy Spirit by faith. We are shown in these chapters how the two primary and foundational doctrines of justification and sanctification relate to one another, and how in Christ, 
the believer always receives both. Indeed, one never receives one without the other. If you don't get anything else in the rest of the sermon, and I hope you do, but if you don't get anything else, just remember, if you are united to Christ, you receive justification and sanctification. You cannot have sanctification without justification. Legalism alert. You can't have sanctification without justification. That is legalism. You cannot have justification without sanctification because that leads to licentiousness and careless living and this attitude of, well, if my great sin leads to God's great grace, then I'm going to continue to show great sin so God can continue to show me great grace. Some, some, you may have noticed from verse 1, would question and even dispute the gospel truth that Paul has been expressing in Romans 5 and prior. People are still disputing it today, if not with their doctrine, with the very pattern of their lives. How many fathers in here do not care about the way their sons are living? How many fathers in here are committed to loving and raising their sons with a kind of fierce love and protection? You would give your life for your son. Well, you'd all say, yes. How many of you would say, well, I'm really unconcerned about the way my son lives, though? I don't think anybody would say that. Some, over the centuries, have seemed to think that God's great love for us in Christ, by grace through faith, making us right with God, justified before God, does not have implications as it concerns the way that we live our lives. It's a major problem. And so Paul, it's his aim over the next three chapters, to teach God's people the truth about the transformative or sanctifying effects of union with Christ, to teach us that God's grace in Christ not only redeems, it renovates. It not only saves sinners from something, namely from the dominion of sin, death, and hell, it saves sinners to something, namely a life of growing holiness in conformity to the image of Christ. God's amazing grace is amazing, not least because it not only saves us from something, the dominion of sin, death, and hell forever, but it saves us to something, a life of growing holiness and growing conformity to Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Dear ones, I cannot express how important this section is for a basic and clear understanding of the gospel and of the Christian life itself, an understanding that emphasizes the supernatural and transformative nature of the Christian life in union with Christ. Let me say that again. This is so foundational, so important. An understanding that emphasizes the supernatural and transformative nature of the Christian life in union with Christ. The problem with modernism, the problem with liberalism, the problem with 
power of positive thinking, self-focused, humanistic Christianity is that it lacks supernaturalism. It doesn't need God. It needs entertainment. It needs programs. It needs to keep the machine going, but it really doesn't need God because salvation really isn't about a supernatural work of God bringing dead sinners into union with Christ and saving them from everlasting hell and giving them righteousness and forgiveness and everlasting life. It's about helping us to be better people. It's about improving the culture. It's about getting involved in the culture wars and in politics. Not to say that individual Christians can't be involved in all of these kinds of things. But once the pulpit is turned into something that it was never meant to be, then suddenly the gospel is lost. And salvation or the gospel becomes more about what we do than what Christ has done on our behalf. So the Christian life is not an exercise in self-help or self-expression. It is a life that starts in and thereafter flows out of union with the living Christ and thus is no longer under the dominion of sin and its eternal consequences. It's a life that starts in and thereafter flows from union with the living Christ. If you have conceived of your Christianity as flowing from a decision you made several years ago, and that's really the basis of how you understand, have self-conception as a Christian, then you are off base. You're not thinking about it in, in apostolic terms, in biblical terms. Because salvation is found in union with Christ not in self-expression, not in good works that we do, not in the fruit of faith, not in social reform, not in personal and and self-improvement. Salvation is found in union with the living Christ, a supernatural work done by the Holy Spirit in the lives of those whom He will draw to Himself. Over the next few months, I pray that as a congregation, we would, with the help of the Holy Spirit, grasp and apply these eternal truths. For I would argue that so many of our problems personally and also in the wider church stem from a misunderstanding of what Paul is teaching in these very chapters, chapters 6 through 8. Before we get to Paul's unsurprising or somewhat predictable question in verse 1, It's important for us to remember what Paul has already been unpacking in the preceding verses. After all, Paul's question in chapter 6, verse 1, doesn't come out of thin air, does it? It has context. And that context is in all that Paul has been teaching to this point about the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ. In the opening chapters, Paul sets forth humanity's great problem and his great need. His great problem course, is sin and God's wrath against sin. God is not indifferent to mankind's rebellion, to his idolatry, pride, and self-exaltation. No, to the contrary, the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 18, quote, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul goes on to explain that mankind, rather than love and serve his God and creator, he has exchanged him for idols and truth for lies, ultimately bringing about chaos and disorder in the world, not least through unnatural and perverse forms of sexuality. Later in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul quotes from Psalms 14 and 53, making it clear that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, no one is righteous. No one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Therefore, under the perfect standards of God's law, all of mankind is shown to be guilty. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank or how little. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are from. It doesn't matter what family you grew up in. It doesn't matter what powerful ties you might have to powerful people. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have after your name on your email. All in their natural selves, stand guilty before holy God. And all excuses are in vain. Paul writes in 3.19, all mouths are stopped and the whole world is accountable to God. People are talking a lot about accountability these days. The government needs accountability. Workers need accountability. Well, we all are accountable to God. Dear ones, there is a righteousness that is required by God that we simply do not have. And it was lost with Adam in the garden. Indeed, in our natural sinful condition, all we have to offer is unrighteousness and ungodliness, the reverse of righteousness, the reverse of godliness. And we are helpless to save ourselves. Dear ones, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. We need a mediator to pay the debt of our sins and to provide us with the perfect righteousness required to be reconciled to God, to be justified. And dear ones, the good news that we sing about this morning, that we celebrate, that we confess, is this, that God sent a Savior God sent a Savior, and His name is Jesus. He fully satisfied the requirements of God's law on our behalf and then gave His sinless life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system was set up in order to foreshadow that once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, all of it anticipating the coming of Christ for us. Through faith in Jesus, therefore, sinners are justified, that is, fully pardoned of all sin and counted righteous in God's sight. Not has become righteous, but is counted righteous, is declared righteous, not because of anything the sinner has done or can do, but because of what Christ has done and because this sinner is united to him. That is the good news of 
the gospel that we glory in, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. And that's the emphasis of Paul's teaching in chapters 3, verse 21 through chapter 5. The the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Chapter 5, verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, being a good teacher, after expounding on the doctrine of justification, he further elucidates this foundational doctrine and explains how sin came into the world and spread to everyone through Adam, humanity's federal representative, and how righteousness comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ, the redeemed sinner's federal representative. And so Paul, in a sense, asks the question, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? We are all born into this world united to Adam. And in Adam, we have what's called original sin, a disease that we are born with called sin. And we sin because we are sinners. But here, Paul speaks about another union, a union with Christ, the second Adam, the one who came to to do that which the first Adam failed to do. The first Adam failed to respond to the devil's temptation. He gave in. The Lord Jesus Christ did not give in. He stood firm. He quoted scripture. The devil fled. He did all of this for you and for me. He obeyed the law and then went to the cross. And so Christ, we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. And Paul has been teaching us this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, chapter 5, verse 18, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In Adam, all die, and in Christ, by faith, all are made alive. The law, Paul writes in verse 20, was not given that we would be saved by it, but that it would expose our sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so you see Paul's argumentation here. He's saying the law was given through Moses not to be a means of salvation for Israel, but a means to uncover and expose just how very sinful they were and just how big their need was. But rather than do that, so many of them and so many today say, oh God, thank you for your law. I'm doing a pretty good job obeying it. I'm good. And I'm going to judge everybody else around me based on my own weaknesses of things I'm not doing very well. Or I'm doing well. And so here, here we have Paul explaining right at the end of this section that the law does not save us. It exposes our sin. And where sin increased, he says, grace abounded all the more. Don't despair. When the law came, we saw so much of our sin, but where so much of that sin was put forward, grace abounded all the more. But Paul, as he begins this large section on sanctification, chapter 6, anticipates a question. He anticipates a question. It's a question about the implications of justification by grace alone, through the gift of faith alone, in Christ alone. He anticipates a question. If grace abounds when we sin 
Does that mean then that it's okay for us to keep living in sin so that grace would continue to abound? Does God's abundant grace mean that we should be indifferent to God's commands as Christians? Should we deduce from the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that God is not at all that concerned about how we live since we are justified and He pours out abundant grace on our lives in Him? In verse 1, Paul asks it this way. Look at verse 1 with me. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, as one commentator, Cranfield, asks it, should we get from Romans 5 on justification that we should, quote, go on sinning so that grace would abound all the more? Here we are introduced to the false teaching of antinomianism. And that's the first heading this morning, antinomianism, a perennial distortion of the gospel. Antinomianism, a perennial distortion of the gospel. What does this word antinomianism mean? Some of you will know, but some, for some perhaps it's a new word. Anti, against, namas, the law, it's against the law-ism. It's against the law-ism. To be an antinomian means that you are against or indifferent to the moral implications of salvation in Christ. In other words, an antinomian isn't that concerned with personal holiness or obedience to God's law. He believes that his justification before God negates his obligation to obey God thereafter. Because when sin abounds, what? Grace abounds. And they'll go even further. That to live for God and to be zealous about obeying and honoring and pleasing God, you are actually undermining God's grace. Rather than viewing those things as the fruit of grace and, 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 the, and the Spirit as empowering you by His grace to live for God's glory, all with the grounds of your salvation being Christ alone, but they will see this as undermining God's grace somehow. But Paul, in the opening chapter in verse 5, explains that he and the other apostles received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul says that this is why God called us, the apostles, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name in all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The aim of salvation is to bring sinners into a right standing with God, justification, and in conformity with the Lord Jesus Christ, sanctification. Fast forward with me to Romans 8. Look at Romans 8 with me quickly. Look at verse 29, Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the first fruits among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. 
and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is the telos of our union with Christ? It is to be like him. 1 John chapter 3, one day you will see him, and when you see him, you will what? Be like him. You won't be a god, but you as a human being will be conformed to that moral conformity of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of Man and the Son of God. You will be like him. Christ purifies us. Look with me at Titus. Turn with me to Titus. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then a word to this preacher, Titus, and to all preachers, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So Christ redeemed us to free us from lawless living and to purify himself a people for his own possession. But that's not what antinomians believe. Sadly, antinomian beliefs have been alive and well throughout church history. The question Paul poses, therefore, is very significant. It's a significant one for the Christian believer. And this has always been a problem. And if it's not a theological problem, it's a problem of the heart. Some might have their doctrine in place, but their heart doesn't quite understand what it is to be in union with Christ and to live out of that union by the Spirit for God's glory. Some think this, if God loves forgiving and I love sinning, then we make a great team. They may not come out and say it like that, but some will in their heart of hearts think this. Secondly, there are many preachers as well as lay people, Christians, that will cherry-pick Bible verses, ignoring large parts of Scripture that seem to make demands. That's uh, really a, a kind of description of so many who, the way they understand Christianity today, it's Christianity on their own terms, not Christianity on God's terms. Christ didn't say, if you want to follow me, Do it on your own terms. Whatever's comfortable for you, whatever makes you happy. No, he said, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. In addition to these sinful attitudes towards uh, God and towards sin, uh, we see pastors paying little attention to the role of the law for the Christian believer. You see, we'll talk about this more in subsequent weeks, but when the Bible says we are no longer under law but under grace, it doesn't mean that we no longer have any relationship to the law, that it plays no more part in our lives. It just, what that means, we're no longer under law, it means we're no longer under the condemnation of the law. 
we're no longer under its crushing requirements for our salvation. Isn't that good news? You are no longer, dear Christian, under the crushing requirements of the law to save you, which was impossible anyway, because Christ was crushed on the cross for your and my disobedience as the perfect sinless one, and we are in him. So pastors pay little attention to the role of the law for the Christian believer. They are hesitant to to exhort Christians on how to live the Christian life because they think, well, I don't want anybody to think that we're a legalistic church, so I'm never going to talk about how we're supposed to live, even though the apostles talk about it all the time. Romans 12 through 16 is just like bullet points in many ways. Much of, the, much of it is bullet points, lists of the way we're called to live as Christians. I read some of them yesterday at the church picnic in Romans 12. And then fourthly, There is an utter misunderstanding of the nature of salvation, especially as it relates to union with Christ. And this brings us to the final point this morning as we introduce this subject of union with Christ, the glorious implications of union with Christ. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? That is, in light of the doctrine of justification and God's abundant grace in Christ. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul writes. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, what does it mean that we have died to sin? Dear ones, this is union with Christ's language. My prayer for our congregation is that every one of our members would conceive of the Christian life as that which is found in union with Christ, flowing from union with Christ. It's a true Christ-centered view of life. It's what Paul talks about over and over and over again. Look with me again in chapter 6, starting in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united, what? With him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united, what? With him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. This is the language of union with Christ over and over like waves of the sea trying to make this point. That if we are saved, it means that we are in Christ. We are united to him. And he is our federal representative. As Adam sinned in the garden and we sinned in him because we were one with Adam federally in that garden through the covenant of works. When Christ died on the cross, it means that when he died, we died with him to sin. And when he rose, we rose with him unto life. And there's aspects and senses of this which we see set forth in in this epistle, in Romans. And so we have what Cranfield calls four senses of dyings and risings with Christ. When's the last time you thought about this? Four senses in which we have dyings 
and risings with Christ. The first one is this. It's the judicial sense, the forensic sense, the legal sense, so that when Christ died and rose again, he did so on my behalf. He died, and when he died, I died with him. When he rose, I rose with him mystically and as him, him as my representative. And so it's because of what he did there that I have died to sin and I've risen in Christ and I stand before God justified through faith. That's the forensic sense. There's a second, second one. A representative dying and rising in baptism. You see, in baptism, there's a ratification of God's gospel promises that in union with Christ, we die and rise. Baptism is a seal and pledge of God's saving grace in Christ. It's why we have this language, which we'll look at more next week, God willing. Thirdly, another dying and rising this text speaks about is that we've been set free from the bondage and dominion and slavery of sin to daily and even hourly die to sin, mortification, and rise daily and hourly to newness of life in obedience to God. And so it's not just that we have forensically died to sin and have risen in Christ and stand before God justified. It's that in our Christian lives, by the Spirit, we are actively dying to sin and walking in the newness of resurrection life in obedience to Him. And then fourthly, there's an, that's why we are commanded to be dead to sin. He says, you have died to sin in one place, and then he says, you need to die to sin in other places. Fourthly, we have the eschatological sense, or the sense of the, the, the last day, where we will finally and truly die and rise physically. Who will deliver me from this body of death, Paul says in Romans 7. Thanks be to God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see, in this life, as we are united to Christ and we receive all the benefits, saving benefits of that union, we recognize that we in this life still have remaining sin. We still struggle with remaining sin, but it no longer has dominion over us. In these three chapters, again, Paul explains both the legal and transformative effects of union with Christ. The apostle explains that when a sinner is united to Christ through faith, he is not only justified, that is declared righteous by God through Christ's blood and righteousness, but he enters a life of growing holiness, a life of growing conformity to Christ. Those who are in Christ will be sanctified. There is no such thing as saving justifying grace without spiritual growth. Dear ones, one never has justification without sanctification because in Christ we receive both. Listen to what Mount says, commentator, quote, any justification that does not lead to sanctification is a sham. Any sanctification not founded upon justification is an ex exercise in legalistic futility and does not deserve the name. Another writer put it this way, quote, justification has inescapable moral implications. That's why Paul says what he says here. How, what shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in sin? How can we who are united to Christ, who himself died to sin? Later in the chapter, we see this. Who himself died to the dominion of sin, and we died with him and in him. How can we then live in that dominion of sin, which Paul has just told us we've been rescued out of? We are no longer slaves of sin. We are slaves of what? Righteousness. Because we are united to the Son. Paul responds emphatically, even violently, to the notion that that a Christian might live in sin, that grace may abound. How can we who die to sin in Christ still live in it? The antinomian draws false implications about justification. And so does the legalist. The antinomian thinks that if when sin abounds, then grace abounds all the more, then we should keep sinning. The legalist thinks that Paul's view of justification will inevitably lead to this kind of thinking, and so they want to add some things on top of justification so that people don't become antinomians. From time to time, you've heard it said, maybe you've said it yourself, man, this church that I was a part of, it's so legalistic, we need a big dose of antinomianism. No. Or this church is so antinomian, we need a big dose of legalism to balance us out. No. What we need is a proper understanding of union with Christ, whereby in him we are justified, and in him we are being sanctified. And life is flowing from that union. John Murray says this, quote, What the apostle has in view is the once-for-all definitive breach with sin, which constitutes the identity of the believer. A believer cannot therefore live in sin. If a man lives in sin, he is not a believer. If we view sin as a realm of, or sphere, then uh, uh, that the believer, excuse me, let me read this again. If we view sin as a realm or sphere, then the believer no longer lives in that realm or sphere. But someone will inevitably ask, Pastor, I find myself still sinning. I struggle with indwelling sin. I give in to temptations. Well, there's a difference between living in sin, being under the dominion of sin, and sinning. There's a difference. And Paul clarifies this in these chapters, particularly in verse 7, where he says, I don't do the things I want to do, and I, I do the things I don't want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this struggle that I have as, as one who has a holy war going on in his breast? Thanks be to God. Christ will one day return, and this struggle will be over. Thomas Watson Thomas Watson in The Godly Man's Picture says this, though sin lives in him, the Christian, he does not live in sin. Every man that has wine in him is not in wine, end quote. We will be exploring these themes over the next few, few Lord's Days. But here's the exhortation for this morning, dear one. Be who you are. If you are a Christian, that means you are united to Christ. And if you are united to Christ, it, rem- it means that all that he has done, he has done for you. And you are in him. And you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has gone. That old dominion of sin, hell, and death has gone. The new has come. That, that new life in Christ, which will one day lead you to eternal life. You are a part of Christ's 
new humanity, washed in His cleansing blood, empowered by His Spirit, under the ministry of the means of grace in the church, and in fellowship with the brethren. You are tasting now what you will know in full at the consummation. You've been set free from the realm of sin and death, so don't go back to it. Don't be like the Egyptians who thought, oh, let's go back to Egypt. I know we were in bondage there, but I I just don't want to be here anymore. Oh, that we would never do such a thing. Let us not identify with sin. Let us consider ourselves dead to the power and dominion of sin and death because in Christ, you are dead to sin. It no longer reigns over you. Does it remain in you? Yes. And so you carry on in that work of mortification and vivification, that renewing grace of growing obedience in the Lord. And so when that sin raises its ugly head, confess it, repent of it, and rest in Christ's grace. And pray the Lord would teach you and grow you and mature you. Dear one, be who you are. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this section of Scripture, which is so full, so rich, as it concerns themes of union with Christ. Lord, as we have introduced them this morning, we know that uh, many may be on a steep learning curve, and we pray that over the next few weeks we'll be able to unpack these things. And we pray, Lord, that we would truly understand ourselves and our identity as united to Christ, and that we are beneficiaries of all of the salvation benefits of being in union with him, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, preservation, and glorification. 